So that's our passion for study, our, our passage for study this morning, as we continue to look at this really beautiful section of Scripture from verses 1 to 10, and we think about just what it is that God has done for us in Christ, and we think about the salvation that we have received and the marvel that it's a free gift of God's grace, that it's something that we can't earn. And that's something we're going to focus on in a special way this morning when we think about the salvation that God gives is a salvation that cannot be earned. It's all of his grace. So I thought about that. I thought about Charles Dickens' masterpiece, A Tale of Two Cities. If you know that story, you know that it's set in the time of the French Revolution. It's a dangerous time, and there are characters, of course, in the story. One character, Sidney Carton, at the end of the novel, offers himself as a sacrifice in the place of Charles Darnay, who is the husband of Lucy Manette, who is the woman that Carton loved. Now, Darnay was a French nobleman, and it was a dangerous time to be a nobleman, and he had been sentenced to be beheaded in the guillotine. Now, as you read through the story, you see in Carton's life that he was always a lazy man, he was always an unprincipled man, but in this moment, he determines to sacrifice himself and take Darnay's place, and he could do, do so because he was you know, uncannily similar in appearance to Darnay, and so he switches place with Darnay, and he prepares to die in the place of this man, he does this because he loves Lucy and wants her to be happy. Now, the very last scene of the book, Dickens takes us into the mind of Carton, who's about to die, and helps us think about the things that he was thinking. And he saw in his mind Lucy and her daughter happy together in England, and he imagines uh, Charles Darnay and Lucy together, remembering with gratitude his sacrifice it's really a, a moving scene as you think about the things that's going through his mind, but I've always been struck by the last thought that he thought before he died. Perhaps you know it. It is a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Now, his last words really stand out to me for this reason, because they seem to summarize so clearly the native religion of the fallen human heart. It's this idea that the men and women of this world, the prevailing view that they have of religion is that there's, there's something they can do in order to earn God's favor. And that's what you see in Carton's words there. He's assuming that by sacrificing himself, which is a good thing, but by doing that, he's actually earning a better place than he's ever been before. This religion is rooted very deeply in the heart of men and women in this world. It's the idea that it's possible by our good works to merit heaven. This is why Hindus will bathe themselves in the river Ganges in India. Because they believe by doing that act, they're washing away their sins. It's something they can do. This is why observant Muslims will follow the five pillars of Islam. Because they think if they do enough good works, then they can earn the gardens of paradise that's been promised to them in the Quran. This is why many Roman Catholics attend Mass and go to confession, because they're doing these religious acts, these religious observances that they believe will, will enable them to stand before God and to earn heaven. And of course, it's, it's not just kind of like overtly religious people. So we're talking about different religions there, but it's, it's really the native religion of the human heart. So if you just go up to someone and ask them, well, when you die, do you think you'll go to heaven? Most people will say yes. And when you ask them why, they'll say, well, because I've been a pretty good person. Right? That's the idea. The idea is that there's something I can do. 
that will earn God's favor. Perhaps as you sit here this morning, that's what you believe. Uh, that's what you have thought as you come into this place, that, that there are some good things you can do or you can be a good enough person that, of course, God is going to receive you when you die and stand before him. Well, if that's your view, I hope you'll pay careful attention this morning because there is really no clearer passage in the Bible to help us understand that salvation is not something that can be earned, but it's something that we have to receive as a free gift. That salvation is not something that we can merit by our actions or by our best intentions, but it's something that God must do. So no one can be good enough for God. If anyone is going to be saved, they will be saved by God's grace alone. And that is what this passage teaches us this morning. So we're continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. We've been looking at these first 10 verses of chapter 2. It's a passage that on one hand is utterly pessimistic about man. I mean, there's few passages that are more pessimistic about man in terms of us being dead in our sins, in terms of us just kind of following after the passions, our own desires, and of being condemned by God as by nature, children of wrath. And yet on the other hand, it's the most optimistic of passages pointing us to God who is a great Savior. And that's what we thought about last week as we looked at verses 4 to 7. We thought about what it means that we've been saved. Uh, we thought about the fact that we've been made alive together with Christ, that we've been raised with him to the heavenly places, that we've been indeed seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And all of that is real for us now, and we will experience the full blessing of that when we stand before God one day. It is a tremendous thing to possess salvation. It's a tremendous thing, tremendous blessing. This wonderful view of God... And, and last week, as we looked at the verses from verse 4 to 7, we thought about, well, what would motivate God to do this? And we saw that God is a God of mercy, and that God is a God of love, and that God is a God of grace. And that word grace is so important. That word grace is really at the heart of these verses that we're going to be studying this morning from verses 8 to 10. God's grace is brought out so clearly here. So in this passage from verses 1 to 10, you see that word grace used three times because it's on Paul's mind. He says it in verse 5. He says it in verse 7. And then he says it again in our passage in verse 8. And here we see very clearly that salvation is by God's grace, not by works. But we also see, when we look to verse 10, that there is a place for good works. And so we're going to see how those fit together this morning. So two points. If you received the little handout as you came through the door, we gave you less this morning than we used to give you, but hopefully that's okay. You just got that handout this morning. You'll see there's two points for the sermon. Two points from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Believers are saved by grace, not by good works. And then the second point is that believers are saved for good works. Works. Let's look at that first point together this morning. Believers are saved by grace, not by good works. Look at verse 8 with me, verses 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, these are some of the most loved verses in the Bible. I'm sure that many, many of you could recite these verses from memory. Why is it that these verses are so well known? Why is it that they're so loved? And the reason is because they are so clear on the gospel. Here, precious truths about what it means to be saved are laid out for us. In fact, looking at these verses, there are really three vital truths that are presented to us. We see first that we're saved by grace, and we're going to define that word grace in just a little bit. 
And we see second, that we're saved through faith. And third, we see that we are not saved by good works. And I want us to take some time together and work through these verses and think about each one of those truths one by one. First truth, we are saved by grace. Look at the first part of verse 8. It says, for by grace you have been saved. That word for there is important because it connects us to what came before. And what came before? Well, it's verses 4 to 7. It's the glory of salvation that we've just talked about, that we have been made alive in Christ and raised in Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And what was God's intention for that? It was that so for eternal ages, he could just pour out the riches of his kindness on us. So age after age after age, what God will do for all eternity is demonstrate the riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And the connection here is that all of that is true, and now he's going to tell us in verse 8 why it's true, what, what God is doing in that. This great salvation, the forgiveness of sins, a restored relationship with God, really the idea is eternal life, all of it from beginning to end, is God's work. It's what God does. But now what's the source of that work? Well, if you look at verse 5, you see Paul talk about the fact that these Ephesian believers, and of course us as well, were saved by grace. And then look at verse 7. Paul speaks of the riches of God's grace. And then in verse 8 now, Paul speaking about grace again. For by grace you have been saved. The Bible teaches that salvation is by grace. It flows out of God's grace. So here's my question. What is grace? Any first-year Greek student will tell you the definition for grace. The word is charis. The definition is grace, favor, and kindness, right? So, so God's grace is really his rich favor given to people that don't deserve it. It's his rich kindness given to people who actually deserve his wrath because of their sins. And when you think about who God is, grace becomes amazing because who is God? Well, he's the sovereign of the universe, uh, he's the king, and being the king means that God is under no obligation to show grace. In particular, he's under no obligation to show grace to people who have rejected him and who have sinned against him and who have taken all the good things that he's given to them and instead of using it for him, have instead used it for themselves. And so the Bible teaches that God would have been perfectly just and perfectly right to judge and condemn all of us. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet when you study the Bible, you see that God is this God of glorious grace, this God who freely gives grace. And it flows out of who he is. Like what J.I. Packer said about the freeness of God's grace. He said this, Grace is free in the sense of being self-originated and of proceeding from one who was free not to be gracious. Only when it is seen that what decides each individual's destiny is whether or not God resolves to save him from his sins, and that this decision, which God is a decision which God need not make in any single case, can one begin to grasp the biblical view of grace. The grace of God is love freely shown towards guilty sinners, contrary to their merit, and indeed in defiance of their demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. That is the wonderful truth of the Bible. 
What we deserve is judgment. What we receive is kindness and favor. And do you notice how all of it flows out of who God is? That's the hope. The hope is God. Again, the hope is not ourselves. It is in God. If God was not a gracious God, we would have been without hope. And yet the Bible teaches that our God is gracious. It's good news. Now that, the fact that God is gracious should impact the way that we live. It just If you know the book of Ephesians, you know in a few chapters, in chapter 5, verse 2, we're going to be commanded to be imitators of God, uh, which means that what we see about God and his character, well, we're supposed to reflect that in our lives. And if God is this God of glorious grace, well, then we should also be a people who are marked by this same kind of grace. So here's my question. When was the last time that you were kind to someone who deserved your anger? I can ask myself the same question. How do you respond when someone cuts you off in traffic? Or when someone steps in front of you at the grocery line? Are you kind or are you harsh? How do you speak to your children when they disobey you? I'm not saying we shouldn't discipline our children. If we love our children, we will discipline our children. I am saying that our parenting should be characterized by grace rather than by wrath. And what about when your spouse lets you down? Does he or she get the cold shoulder for a few days until they kind of sense that they've stepped out of line? Or do you meet them with the same kind of grace, the same kind of favor, the same kind of kindness that you have received from God? That's really my prayer for this church, that this church would be a church that's marked by grace. And we have every reason to be that because we are a people who proclaim that we have received free, rich, glorious, amazing grace from God. So I want our, I want our church to be marked by that kind of kindness and grace. And, and here's the thing, you know, the elders need grace. You know, even though we hate it, one day we're going to let you down. Uh, Ron, Scott, and I, perhaps one morning we'll just pass by you and we won't speak to you when you were expecting us to speak to you or, or perhaps when you needed us to speak to you and we were just busy, caught up doing something else. Well, we're going to need grace in that moment. Or perhaps the day will come when we'll make a bad decision. We prayerfully make decisions as leaders in the church and yet, and yet maybe, maybe someday we'll make a bad decision or something that proves to be a bad decision. And in those moments, we're going to need you to be gracious to us. And we need you to pray for us that we, would be, that we would be men who would be gracious as well, that the leadership in this church would be uh, marked by that same kind of kindness and love and favor that we have received. Let's pray for that for our church. So that's what you see in the first part of verse 8, that we're saved by grace. But then there's a second truth that you see kind of in the middle of verse 8, and that's that we are saved through faith. That word through there is very important. So look at verse 8 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So what does it mean? What does it mean that we have been saved through faith? I want us to get at that question by kind of breaking that question down into two questions. What is faith? And then what does it mean that we are saved through faith? So what is faith? We talk about faith a lot. Faith is actually very popular in our culture. It's just we're not talking about the same thing. So when, when we, as followers of Jesus, talk about faith, what is it that we are discussing? Well, a few weeks ago, we looked into this, and we said that faith involves knowledge about something, and it involves an intellectual belief in something. But we said that at the very heart of faith is this idea of a resting trust, a leaning upon, a trusting in. So think about the example of a chair. 
So I can know uh, that a chair uh, should be able to hold my weight because it's made of strong things like wood and metal. And I can intellectually believe that a particular chair is strong enough to hold me. But for all of that, I have an exercised faith in that chair. Why? Because faith is a resting trust. It is only when I actually sit down in the chair that I am showing faith, that I am putting faith in that chair and resting on it. Now, that might seem like a simple illustration, but it makes an important point. Because we tend to think of faith as this mystical thing, some kind of a spiritual thing that we're supposed to work up in some way so that that God will be happy. We're supposed to be able to produce this somehow. But actually, faith is very much a part of our day-to-day lives. So think about just some common illustrations. You know, you go to the store and you get a bottle of water. It's a hot day, unlike today. It's a hot day. And you open the bottle of water and you drink it without thinking it. Why? Because you are putting your faith in the fact that that bottle of water has not been contaminated in some way. We do it all the time. What about when you walk over a bridge? Uh, You're trusting that that bridge is strong enough to hold you. And here's the thing. We put our trust in bridges all the time. And what about when you drive on the road? Well, you're putting your faith in the ability of other drivers, right? That they're not going to just swerve out of their path and and hit you. And what about when you get on a plane for a flight? Well, you're, you're putting your trust in the skill of the pilot and in the trustworthiness of the plane or the flightworthiness of the plane. All these common activities are are demonstrations of faith, because what? Faith ultimately is this idea of a resting trust. And so when Paul says that we're saved through faith, he's not talking about some kind of mystical thing that defies definition. He's simply talking about trust. But do you notice that it's a saving trust? So what is it that makes faith saving? It's such an important question, and the answer is the thing that makes faith saving is that it is directed towards someone who is strong enough to save. You see, it's the object of our faith. It's what we're trusting in that determines whether or not our faith is a good faith or a misplaced faith. Because it's possible to misplace faith, to have misplaced faith. So again, if you drink that bottle of water and it has been contaminated, what's going to happen? Well, we're going to get sick, right? We might have trusted that it was clean, but our faith was misplaced. Or if you get in a plane and the pilot happens to be a poor pilot or a pilot who's having a bad day and the plane crashes, well, we're probably going to die. Once again, the faith was misplaced. So at the end of the day, it is not the faith itself that saves us. It is the object of our faith that saves us, right? And in the Bible, the object of saving saving faith is always Jesus Christ. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, whoever puts their trust in Jesus, should not perish but have eternal life. And by God's grace, this room is filled with people that have experienced the reality that Jesus is a trustworthy and mighty Savior. And we have put our trust in him, and we have not, we have not regretted it. That brings us to the second question then. What does it mean that we are saved through faith? Well, it doesn't mean that possessing faith is somehow a good work that merits God's favor and gets us into heaven. Why? 
Because as we're going to see in just a few moments, salvation is not of works. So it is a good thing to possess saving faith, but possessing saving faith is not a good work that earns salvation. In fact, the Bible teaches, and this is important, and this is controversial, but the Bible teaches that our faith itself is a gift of God. Friend, why is it that you trust in Jesus and someone else doesn't? It's because God has given you that faith as a gift. And you say, Pastor, where do you see that? Well, I see it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. This is what Paul says there. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That word granted there is the Greek word charis. It's the word that we use for grace. It's that same word. Literally, it's, it has been graced to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Possessing saving faith is not a good work that saves us because salvation, every aspect of it from beginning to end, is of God. It's what the Bible teaches John Newton put it very well. He said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed." So what does it mean that we have been saved through faith? Well, theologians, I think very helpfully, have described faith as a connecting grace. So faith itself does not save us, But faith connects us to the grace of God, and it is the grace of God that saves us. So let me give you a a word picture, an illustration of that. Think about the needle that delivers life-saving medicine, right? So you've got the medicine that has to get into your body somehow. How's it going to get into the body? Well, well, the needle connects that life-saving medicine to your body. The medicine passes through the needle into your body, and so you are saved. It's a very good picture of the fact that faith itself doesn't save us, but it connects us to God's grace, and God's grace is what saves us. There's a biblical illustration of this as well in the Old Testament. So think about what you know of the Old Testament. The people of Israel are in the wilderness. They're doing what the people of God do, which is grumble and complain against God. And what does God do? Well, he sends judgment. He sends fiery serpents among them. And these fiery serpents, whenever they bite someone, that person dies. And the people realize that they've sinned against God, and they realize that sin is serious. And say so they go to Moses, and they say, intercede for us, help us. And so Moses prays to God. And what does God do? God says this, I want you to make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up. And if anyone looks at the bronze serpent, they will not die. That's the promise. So the Israelite people, they did it. They looked, and the Bible says as many as looked at that serpent, they did not die. Here's my question. Was it the act of looking itself that cured them, that healed them? Friend, no. No, the act of looking itself just demonstrated the faith, and it was the faith that connected them to what? To the grace of God, and it was the grace of God that saved them. Of course, all of that, this is what I love about the Old Testament, All of it points us to Jesus, right? Because John chapter 3, Jesus says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that all who look to him will be saved. That's a picture of what it is. 
Friends, looking to Jesus is this glorious, this glorious picture of what it is to have saving faith. Did you notice there's no work in looking? There's no effort to it? It's just those who look to Jesus are just demonstrating that they've been granted this faith, which connects them to the grace of God. So that's my question for you, friend, as you sit here this morning. Have you looked to Jesus? By faith, have you seen him as the Savior who saves? And have you put your trust in him? So we've seen that we're saved by grace through faith. Now there's a third truth in this verse, verses 8 and 9. We are not saved by good works. If, if Paul can make anything clear, he's trying so desperately, it seems, to make it clear here in this passage that there is nothing we can do to earn God's salvation. Look at the end of verse 8 and the first part of verse 9. He says, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So, so we've highlighted the reality that salvation is by grace, and that means this, that salvation cannot be a result of any good work that we have done because God's grace cannot be earned. Otherwise, it is no longer grace. But Paul he brings it out even more clearly by saying two times, this is not your own doing, you know, referring to salvation there. And he says that this is not a result of works. And of course, that's not the only place in the Bible where Paul makes it emphatically clear that there are no good works we can do to save ourselves or to merit God's favor. Listen to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. It says, yet we know that a person is not justified. And that word justified means uh, to be declared righteous by God. The idea is that we're saved he says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He brings it out so clearly. And my question is why? Why does God want us to know so clearly that salvation is not of works. Well, you see it at the end of verse 9 there, so that no one may boast. Friends, salvation is about God's glory, not man's glory. If anyone is going to be saved, it's because God himself is going to be gracious to that person and grant them the gift of salvation. So when you and I, by God's grace, stand in, in glory, you know, we're on the streets of gold there, we're not going to be strutting around talking about how great we were and about all the great things that we did for God. Instead, we're just going to be amazed. We're going to be in wonder that this glorious God would welcome us into his presence and then lavish his kindness on us for age after age after age after age. For all eternity, we will be debtors to God's grace and we will delight to have it that way. Augustus Toplady said, A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing. No fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hides all my transgressions from view. Debtors to mercy. Debtors to grace. So here are these three sweet truths that we see. Salvation is by God's grace, and we are saved through faith, and we are not saved by good works. And friends, when you put it all together, what you're talking about is the gospel. 
It's the good news of Jesus Christ. The Bible contains bad news. The bad news is that we were created by God who's good and holy, who wanted to have a relationship with us that would be marked by love and by us walking with him in obedience and also in joy. And yet our first parents sinned against God in the garden. Adam and Eve decided it would be better for them to live their own way and to do what they wanted to do. So they rebelled against God and they fell into sin. And the Bible says that we sinned in them. And because we come from them, well, we've all been born with this same nature that rejects God. And so from our earliest moments, it feels very natural for us to, instead of living for God and his glory, instead, kind of our universe gets shrunk down to the size of me. And how can I make myself happy? And how can I promote myself? And and how can I live for myself? And, And that is what seems so natural and so right. But it's brokenness. And we were all characterized by that brokenness. And it led us to reject God's law, and it led us to harm other people as well. And the Bible says that that's sin, and that sin is serious. That sin separates us from God. That sin brings us under God's just judgment because of our sins. And then here's what we've been seeing this morning. There is no way for us to be good enough for God. God is holy. We're not holy. There's no work we can do. Even sacrificing my life for someone else, maybe the greatest demonstration of love, It doesn't save. There is no way for us to be good enough for God. If anyone is to be saved, we need good news. The good news is Jesus Christ. God the Father sent his son into the world. God is a God of grace who in rich grace gave us a gift. The gift is his son. That's what we're celebrating at this time of year. That Jesus, who's the eternal son of God, would come into this world and live the kind of life that you and I, listen, I have failed to live. And then in matchless love, he lays down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. Why? Why? Well, he was living the kind of life you and I should have lived, but we failed to live. And then on the cross, he was bearing in himself the wrath of God, what we deserved because of our sin. And then he died, and then he rose from the dead, demonstrating that God had accepted that perfect sacrifice. And now the good news of Christianity is this, that if you will turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus, it's that faith word again, put your trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone and what he's done, God will grant you his great salvation through Jesus. Jesus' perfect life will be credited to you. All the sins you have committed, just, just think about it. All the sins you've ever committed, are committing, will commit, will be forgiven, completely washed away, and you will stand before God, accepted, beloved, welcomed, one who will receive his grace forever and ever and ever. And here's what we have to understand. It's a free gift. Friend, that free gift is offered to you today. If you will even now turn from self and turn from sin and just put your hope in Christ and what Christ has done, even now you'll receive that free gift. So friend, look to Jesus. Put your trust in him and he will save you. Brothers and sisters, as we think about God's grace, the proper response is worship. We did nothing to earn his salvation. We could never earn his salvation. We have received it freely. It's very possible for us to live as if that's not true. 
It's very possible for us to come to church on a Sunday morning feeling as if God is in heaven, just kind of looking down on us and disappointed in us, and we've had such a bad week. And friend, you just, just listen to the gospel. He's given you his grace. And you're welcome now. And he loves you. And he's at work in you. You now have been given the standing of forgiven, perfectly righteous, beloved son or daughter of God. These truths are rich and deep. And at this time of year, we should ponder them. And we should live lives that are marked by grateful worship to such a God who saved us. That's what we see when we look at that, that first point. Believers are saved by grace, not by good works. Now, more briefly, much more briefly, a second point. Believers are saved for good works. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship. There's, there's too much good stuff in here to go by too fast, so just bear with me. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I do believe that if we understand verse 10 correctly, it is one of the most wonderful verses in the entire Bible because think about the contrast of what you see. We have read through verses 1 to 10 three times, you know, subsequent weeks. Why? Because I want you to see the whole context of how it fits together. But look at verses 1, 2, and 3, who we were. We were dead. We were enslaved. We were under the condemnation of God. Now look at verse 10. What does it say about who we are? Workmanship. That word workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, from which we get the English word poem. The force of the word is that we are we are a piece of art. That we are God's workmanship. That, that we are God's masterpiece. So again, if you came to church struggling and imagining that God is in heaven disappointed with you and barely tolerating, with, uh, barely tolerating you, stop listening to the lie of Satan and begin to listen to what God says about you in verse 10. You are his workmanship. That's an amazing thing that God delights in us. And here's the thing. God knows just how fallen we all are. And God knows the beautiful creation he is making us to be. And one day we will see him face to face. And all the sin and brokenness will be stripped away. And we will be radiant because of Jesus. Uh, this great artist work will be complete on that day. Notice also in the second part of verse 10 that we are a new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works. So good works do not save us. They're not the ground. They're not the basis of our, of our salvation. But do you notice that, that good works have a part in our salvation? What's the part? Well, they are the necessary fruit of our salvation. The Bible teaches that we have been saved in order to live a life of good works. Listen to John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. The Lord Jesus talks about this. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, 
that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What role does good works or do good works play in the life of a believer? Well, they demonstrate the genuineness of, of the salvation. Do you see that? It demonstrates that we're really a part of the vine. Why? Because we produce fruit, that we're connected to the vine in that way, and our good works glorify God. You see that at the end in verse 8 of John 15, right? That God the Father is glorified. And why is he glorified? He's glorified that from beginning to end, it all comes from him. And he's glorified, you see, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, because it is God himself who has planned out from eternity past the good works, listen, that you will walk in today and tomorrow and this week. And every single day for the rest of your life, God has a plan. And it involves you, brother or sister in Christ, doing good works that bring glory to him and that demonstrate that you are a child of God. So what good works are you doing? Let me give you kind of two pastoral exhortations as we conclude this morning. If the sum of the good works you do is to come to church and sit for an hour and a half and go home and do nothing else for God for the rest of the week, friend, let me say it as gently as I can, but you should be concerned. Because those who merely profess faith in Jesus will be content with a life that looks like that. But if you have been born again, you won't be because you have been created for good works. If you're a believer, you have been given spiritual gifts. This is the second exhortation. You have been given spiritual gifts to minister for the good of our brothers and sisters in a local church. If you're a member of Christ Fellowship, God intends for you to be doing that here now. He may move you to another local church in the future to do that there. But you have been saved to be doing good works. And part of those good works is ministering your spiritual gifts for the good of others in the church. So I want to encourage you to do that. So many people, when they come to be a part of Christ Fellowship, they let us, the elders, know that they're not sure what their spiritual gifting is. So let me encourage you in this way. Just start serving. And look for those things that you do that bring you great joy and make you feel like, you know, I'm doing kind of what I was made to do. And then look for those things that you do that help other people become like Jesus. And then you will have a good indication of what your spiritual gift is. And then use it. And then serve a lot. And trust that you're laying up treasures in heaven and that you won't regret anything you've done for King Jesus. If you want to know how you can get involved in serving at Christ Fellowship, we've actually put together a sheet of paper that details some of the different ways that people can be involved in serving. It's on the table there. It's even in color, at least a little part of it is, which is a big deal for us. It's right over there on the table. Grab one after church and look and pray about how God would have you serving this body. So we've seen a lot this morning, right? We're saved by grace, not by good works, and yet we are saved for good works. And here's what we've seen. When we stand before God in glory, no one is going to use Sidney Carton's words. No one's going to imagine that their works somehow earned heaven. Instead, we will know from beginning to glorious end that salvation is all of God. For eternal days, we will be debtors to grace and we'll love it. We'll love it. Let's pray.